Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Keeping the faith after a tense meeting with Israel's war cabinet, some former hostages and families of others are criticizing the government. But one man waiting for his son to come home tells us his anger is directed elsewhere. Pardon me, pardon him? The former president of Peru was convicted of human rights violations, but could soon be officially forgiven by the state. We'll hear how that's sitting with the families of his victims. Emergency stop. A New Brunswick mayor says homelessness is a crisis in his town and declared a state of emergency, which the provincial government just overruled and overturned. Changing the laugh track, assessing the astonishing legacy of the late Norman Lear, whose TV shows tackled big issues and generated big controversies, but also big laughs. Counter-strike. An Ohio woman is found guilty of assaulting a Chipotle manager after throwing a hot burrito bowl at her face and was herself bowled over when she was sentenced to work in fast food herself. And when pooch comes to shove, pressure builds on Guinness after new reporting suggests it may only have handed a record to the world's oldest dog because the dog's owner said he was the world's oldest dog. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that knows you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but maybe the oldest dog was a new trick. They want their loved ones to come home. They also want answers. Yesterday, family members of the hostages taken on October 7th met with Israel's war cabinet, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The families had pushed for that meeting, which they hoped would be a step toward the release of the dozens of hostages still in Gaza. But the meeting was not easy. Shai Venkert was there. His 22-year-old son, Omer, is one of the hostages. We reached Mr. Venkert in Gadara, Israel. Shai, how would you describe the meeting yesterday? It was a big meeting. It started with the evidence of the release hostages. They are so brave that they they came to to share with us the awful moments that they were. And it was very difficult to hear about the condition that they were, the suffering that they had, and what they are, need to go through this horrible thing at the at the Hamas. It was unbelievable. What were you hoping would come out of the meeting when you when you decided to attend? I hope to to hear that the war cabinet, the top priority or the the first mission they need to do is to take all the hostages out, and the war will not end until all hostages. Mm-hmm will be at home alive. This I heard a little bit uh, that uh, they are doing the best that I can. And uh, I believe them. You were satisfied with the answers that you got from officials? Quite satisfied, yeah. I've read some accounts from people uh, who were there, and and they describe it as being very tense as well, and not everyone felt feels the same way uh, that you do about the response so far. Did you see that kind of tension and anger as well from others at the meeting? You have to understand mm-hmm. that 60 days without seeing the yeah. our beloved, it's very tense, it's very difficult, but it was very, very emotional. What did Prime Minister Netanyahu and other members of the cabinet what did they say they would do next to try to get your son, Omer, and other hostages home? Um, they said that uh, the act of war that uh, they forced us 
uh, to to continue because the Hamas didn't uh, keep his uh, agreement. What do you mean? So they need to act. Mm-hmm. The, the Hamas needed uh, for all one day of uh, truce or ceasefire. The Hamas will release uh, ten women and children. And on the last day, they told that they want to bring only seven women and three dead bodies. That's what the news told us, and they didn't commit the, their part of the agreement. So if they are not doing their their side, Israel needs to go back as, as committed. There's, there's some reporting in Haaretz quoting one of the hostages who were were released and was at the meeting yesterday and were concerned about the IDF's response because they were saying that they were in a home surrounded by explosions and the quote, we slept in tunnels and we feared not Hamas, but that Israel might kill us. Yeah, I heard it. This is very difficult to hear. Yeah. It's make me more concerned about my son. My son has a colitis disease. It's a chronic disease of the mm-hmm. stomach. And to think that he's 60 days over there without any treatment and without medical aid. And to hear also that there is bombing and there is danger for them. Although they um, they secure us and they told us that they know where are they bombing. I, I believe in the government, you know. Mm-hmm. They are isolating uh, civilians. They are isolating uh, responsible for the war. And I think they are know, know how to do the job. I wanted to ask you more about your son. You mentioned his colitis. When was the last time you, you spoke to him? On the 7th of October, mm-hmm. we went to the safe room and we called Omer. He told us that he's uh, at the Nova Fest and is uh, running through a shell shelter over there. So only WhatsApp was working. And uh, suddenly he, he described us that there is a gun shooting. And the last sentence that he wrote to his mother, she asked him, are you okay? He answered, no, I'm frightening. Mom, I'm frightening. And we lost contact. Oh Until noon that we saw the video that Omer is alive, only handcuffed. Only with underwear, they are beating him, slaughtering him. This is a difficult video to see. And two days later, we got informed by the IDF that uh, he's kidnapped. And you've been waiting for more information since then? Yeah, yeah. As you said, my son has a colitis disease. This is a chronic disease in the stomach. In a stress uh, situation, it's getting severe. It's painful stomach ache, diarrhea, and bleeding. He needs a medical attention, medical aid. Yesterday, we had an official uh, meeting with the ICRC, and I asked, how come the president of the Red Cross goes to the Gaza Strip and don't mention and don't go to visit or to do a, an effort to see the hostages? She only went to see the Palestinian hospitals over there. And they told me at the office, yeah, but she she was uh, saying about the hostages that uh, need to be released. This is uh, just a statement. It's nothing for me. It's uh, humiliating. I'll just say on the ICRC's UK website, the ICRC does not have information about where the hostages are. This is a quote from their website. Even if there were situations where a location is known, the ICRC cannot force its way into where hostages are held. They can only conduct visits once agreements are in place with the parties holding them, including ensuring their safe access. So that's the explanation they give. This is a nice explanation for the website. But I want to ask the president of the Red Cross, if they ask to see, if they ask to bring in medicine or to bring us a sign of life. Did they ask it? I don't think so. You have other children as well, uh, teenagers. How are they doing? Yeah, well, I have a son, Ron. He's uh, 18 years old and Maya is 13 years old. Mm-hmm. She's She has like a mask. She behaves normally. 
but Ran is more uh, furious and he's asking about him and he saw the video also and he was shouting what they are doing to my brother it's very difficult for them they love him a lot he's the big brother and they miss him a lot I miss my son a lot Shai I very much appreciate your time and I hope you get answers and news soon thank you Thank you. Thank you very much. Shai Venkert is the father of 22-year-old Omer Venkert, who was taken hostage by Hamas-led militants on October 7th. We reached him in Gedera, Israel. You can divide TV comedy into two eras, before Norman Lear and after Norman Lear. And after Norman Lear, things were never the same again. The producer and comedy writer died yesterday at the age of 101, leaving behind a lengthy list of classic sitcoms that includes All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Sanford and Son, Maud, Good Times, and One Day at a Time, to name just a few. His shows were known for tackling tough issues with social satire and for their realistic characters, often working people, who were rarely seen on the screen before Mr. Lear showed up. And they were tremendously popular. All in the Family was the number one show on TV for five years running and spawned six different spinoffs. Cliff Nesteroff is a historian of comedy whose new book, Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars, features analysis of the work of Norman Lear. We reached him in Los Angeles. Cliff, that that list of shows, I mean, and and so many of them hold up today. Where do you put Norman Lear when you're talking about influence on television, comedy in particular? Where do you put Norman Lear in terms of influence? Well, Norman Lear is arguably the most influential figure in television comedy of the 20th century. That means he's one of the most influential people in the 21st century, because most of the things that we see in comedy, so much of it today has a social commentary aspect or a political aspect or a message aspect. And before Norman Lear came along, that simply didn't exist on American TV. If you look at the type of shows that were on ABC, CBS, NBC prior to the advent of All in the Family, it was shows like Mr. Ed, about a talking horse, The Munsters, The Adams Family, very unrealistic depiction of America. As Mel Brooks once said of Norman Lear, he changed television forever, and he changed comedy uh, for the better. Shows that suddenly had a very strong point of view. So All in the Family really sort of address the types of debates that were actually going on in American living rooms, the generation gap. You had Archie Bunker, this uh, older, bigoted, conservative man, sparring with his hippie son-in-law who was concerned about social justice issues. His style of comedy, that approach of parroting the American conversation and the controversies in the body politic, are more common than not in comedy today. We're going to play a clip now for you and our listeners from Maud. This is an episode from 1972, November of that year. And the topic of abortion is being discussed openly. Here's part of that conversation. We're free. We finally have the right to decide what we can do with our own bodies. All right, then will you please get yours into the kitchen? (laughs) You're just scared. I am not scared. You are, and it's as simple as going to the dentist. Now I'm scared. (laughs) What does it signal to you how that show handled the issue of abortion? Yeah, it was the first reference to abortion in an American comedy show ever. That episode of Maud was extremely controversial. Many affiliates refused to air it. Several sponsors dropped out. Uh, Pepsi, Pharmacraft, Aqua Velva, um, they all pulled their sponsorship. Um, some affiliates ran disclaimers ahead of the episode explaining their decision not to show uh, the episode. And it made Norman Lear a target of the budding evangelical political movement in the 1970s, and he remained a target of them for uh, the next several years, so much so 
that when the moral majority in the late 1970s, Norman Lear was so alarmed by their climb to power that he formed his own organization specifically to combat the moral majority and the influence of evangelical extremism in American politics. It was called The People for the American Way. Mm -hmm. He released several documentaries exposing their attempts to try and repeal things like Roe versus Wade. I wanted to ask you about that because it does speak to his reach beyond, you know, network television, beyond comedies. And you posted about a documentary he he had done about the influence that evangelical Christians were trying to, to have as he saw it in the political realm. And it was called Life and Liberty for All Who Believe. Why do you think it's important to recognize that part of Norman Lear's legacy as well? Well, I think because it was very prescient. You know, he was warning about things that probably Norman Lear's critics would have uh, characterized as alarmist when he warned that abortion rights were going to be uh, repealed, when he warned evangelical influence in politics would attempt to circumvent the civil rights of various minority groups. But now you go back and look at that documentary, most of what he was warning about has come to pass. Most of it has come true, and those influences that he was warning about have only become uh, better organized, wealthier, and more powerful. I was reading that he he didn't necessarily feel that he actually made concrete change, but he did get people talking and said that they're still talking. Yes, absolutely. I think that you talk to any showrunner of any sitcom of the 1980s, the 90s, the 2000s, all of them bowed down to Norman Lear and his incredible assembly line of hit after hit after hit. He was one of the first people to bring uh, African-American cast mm-hmm. to uh, television comedy on a regular basis in a non-stereotyped way. He was the first person to bring uh, social commentary about feminism and women, women's equality on network television. And also, what shouldn't be forgotten, all of that aside, he created great comedy that made mm-hmm. millions of people laugh, regardless of their political Uh, beliefs or affiliation. Even now in some of the reaction, I think when you look at the list of people commenting and what they're saying, there's such a range in in the creative people who are responding. And and one that caught my eye, Quinta Brunson, who of course is the award-winning creator and and writer and one of the stars of Abbott Elementary, called Norman Lear, quote, my goat. So for, for her, he's the greatest of all time. Is he your greatest of all time? To say he's the greatest of all time almost isn't even adequate. It's almost, it's almost to diminish it. It's, it's greater than that. It's more important than that. It's more influential than that. Mm-hmm. Um, his influence and his legacy is so tremendous. It's so enormous. And his influence is there even for people who don't even know who he is. He's influencing people and culture and television and comedy for generations, even when people aren't aware of it. Cliff, thank you for your time. Thank you. Cliff Nesteroff's new book is called Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. We reached him in Los Angeles. Maybe you had a bad day at work today, and if you did, I'm I'm sorry. But at the risk of sounding unsympathetic, I can pretty much guarantee it wasn't as bad as the workday Emily Russell had a few months back. Ms. Russell was working in a Chipotle in Ohio in September when a customer threw a hot chicken burrito bowl at her face, a moment which, since it's 2023, was caught on video by another customer. Now the woman who threw that ball, Rosemary Hain, has been found guilty of assault, and her initial sentence was a fine and 180 days in prison, but the judge offered her an unusual choice. She could cut her jail time by 60 days if she went to work in a fast food restaurant, and she accepted. The employee she assaulted, Emily Russell, now works at another restaurant in Strongsville, Ohio, and that's where we reached her. Emily, how do you feel now about the sentence that came down in the end? I, at the end of the day, I feel relieved. 
I'm truly happy with the outcome. I honestly thought she was going to get a slap on her wrist and nothing of it. So with having her have to walk uh, in my shoes and go to jail, I think it's a perfect outcome. What do you hope she learns when she walks into her new job in that fast food restaurant? That it's not easy. That no matter where you work, it could be an office job, it could be a fast food place, it could be anything. Like, no job is easy. So it's going to be a difficult time, and it's going to be like starting over again. Let's go back to, to that day. Our listeners just heard a clip of what it sounded like. What did it feel like in that moment to you? It honestly went by so fast. Like, my mind was to get this person who's yelling and disturbing the peace out of my restaurant and to feed the customers that just wanted to come in and get their dinner. It was all just a shock to me and filled with anxiety. Oh, I'm sorry you had to go through that. How did it escalate to that point? Can you just give us a quick sense of how how it all unfolded? She just didn't like the way I made her food. I was the highest manager there was at the restaurant. I made her food twice, and she had left the building, checked her food in the car, and she had came back and started yelling at me and my crew, disturbing my customers. And next thing I know, I had food in my face dripping from my hair. Hot food. It was hot food, yeah. It was it was like 200 degrees hot food. I literally just had made that food, too. And I just switched it out to make her food fresh and hot for her, and she just threw it in my face. And are you okay? Were you injured at all? Um, the police did check me out. Um, I just had a little bit of redness to my face because of the, how hot it was, like the food. But overall, like right now, I'm okay. There was a few bruisings, but nothing too major. And I'm just taking it a day by day mentally. I'm glad. I'm glad you're you're okay. But it is a lot to deal with. Uh, I, I I can I can imagine. She she was quoted as saying, "Well, in the reports, she said she was sorry, uh, and and there were no excuses for her behavior. But also said, if you had you know if you'd seen the food, it, you know it looked disgusting. What do you make of what she said? One, I don't believe any. Sorryness she has said to me, any apology. Um, you know, she said she was having a bad day, but everybody has a bad day, and you don't physically take it out on any human being. It was just really hard. Like, I don't even know. I have no words. I know, uh, you know, after after this court case, you, there's also a, a GoFundMe that people have put together to try to give you some help. You have a new job. You're working at another restaurant yeah. now. So how are you feeling overall? Blessed. I, I Blessed. can cry mm-hmm. right now just oh. thinking about it. Sorry. Um, no apology needed. My family and my friends, like just the love and support from them and having so many strangers now across the United States and now across, you know, yeah. to different countries. It amazes me and I, I truly can't thank them enough. Like, I wish everybody, I could just hug everybody that has donated to my GoFundMe because they're truly helping me out. That's so lovely to hear, Emily. What are your hopes for your career in this new job? With this new job, it's just to keep going. You know, just I love business. I love food businesses. I love getting to know things. So I'm just, my hope is just to continue up and become a manager and hopefully own my one business one day. What has this experience, it's, we hope, rare, but what has it taught you about business? That it could happen at any time. Like, I've been in the business for nine years, the food business for nine years of my life. So I've dealt with this before, but not actual physical contact. Mm -hmm. It just amazes me. Like, anybody can come in here and do whatever they want because they don't have their way. And it's just, that's not how it should be. What do you want to say to, to people who are pulling into a Chipotle, maybe, or another restaurant? You know, what they should take away from this story. Um, You know, like everybody goes through their own things. Just like yourself, you have a bad day. Don't take it on on the people who are just going to work and doing their job. Like, that's all I was doing. I just went in to go do my job, take care of my business, and go home at the end of the day. And you need to respect those who are serving us in food business and any job. Like, we just need to respect them because they're taking their time out of their day to do a job that we did not want to do. Emily, thank you for your time. 
Thank you. Take care. You too. That was Emily Russell. We reached her in Strongsville, Ohio. And you can find her story on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. Over the last year of his life, he was a household name, even if people were split as to how to pronounce that name. The world's oldest dog, Bobby, just turned 31 years old. The Portuguese pooch became a viral sensation. Meet Bobby, the oldest dog on the face of the earth. The Portuguese pooch just turned 31. Play of the day, and the pooch who deserves a round of applause. You get it, yeah. yeah. This is Bobby, the pup that Guinness World Records just crowned world's oldest living dog. Our dog in Portugal has been certified as the world's oldest pooch. Bobby is a... Dog in Portugal just awarded the title the world's oldest dog. Finally tonight, forget the cat with nine lives. This dog has them beat. Meet Bobby, the world's oldest dog. Just a few news reports celebrating the world's oldest dog, Bobby, or the world's oldest dog, Bobby. It's Bobby, incidentally. And I don't know if you noticed an almost imperceptible, ominous note, so masterfully subtle you probably felt it more than you actually heard it. That note represents doubts that have been raised about Bobby's age. Was he a sweet, chubby, brown farm dog with kind eyes and a constantly wagging tail, or a cunning imposter with kind eyes and a constantly wagging tail? Sadly, Bobby died in October, not long after Guinness certified him as the world's oldest dog ever at the age of 31 years and 163 days. His owner attributed his age to his lifelong diet of human food and a complete lack of stress on the farm in Portugal that was his home. But some critics are attributing his age to his owner. A recent article in Wired UK found that Guinness relied on a Portuguese pet database to verify Bobby's age. But that database only listed 1992 as Bobby's date of birth because Bobby's owner said it was. No further proof was asked for or supplied. Also, the article quotes a Hungarian expert on dog longevity, new career path just dropped, who says dogs as overweight as Bobby hardly ever get super old. Now, of course, that same expert admits that Bobby could have been 31. It's just unlikely. So something very unlikely happened, which it does all the time, or... Guinness fell into a Bobby trap. It's Bobby, but that Bobby would have worked too. As we're going to air, the former president of Peru is still behind bars for now. If that sentence sounded strange, it should. In 2009, Alberto Fujimori was convicted of human rights violations in connection with extrajudicial killings and kidnappings. He was sentenced to 25 years, but so far has only served 16. In 2017, he was issued a pardon and freed. Then the pardon was annulled and Mr. Fujimori was sent back to prison. Yesterday, Peru's constitutional tribunal voted to reaffirm its decision to reinstate a pardon, defying an order by an international court and calling for Alberto Fujimori's release. That prompted celebrations from his supporters and protests by the families of his victims. Joe Marie Burt is an associate professor at George Mason University and a senior fellow with the Washington Office on Latin America. She monitored Mr. Fujimori's trial. We reached Professor Burt in Washington, D.C. earlier today. Joe Marie Alberto Fujimori's lawyer says he's very hopeful that his client will be freed. What's your sense of things? Yeah, it's looking like the president of the Republic of Peru is about to set Fujimori free. Mm. And so there's a lot of concern about what's going to happen next. We'll talk about that conviction and those violations. Our listeners just heard what it sounded like as as people protested this the decision by the Constitutional Court. What are our families of the victims telling you? Well, you know, they're just frustrated because this is not the first time 
Fujimori has been freed. The last time he was freed in 2017, the victims had to go to the Inter-American Court for Human Rights and they asked the court to rule on whether the pardon is in agreement with international law. The court said it is not and ordered Peru to return Fujimori to prison, which it eventually did. And yet again, we have the Constitutional Tribunal reviving that very same pardon, which the Inter-American Court ruled was, you know, was a violation of international law and of victims' rights again. Is it re-traumatizing for them? It's absolutely re-traumatizing. I mean, first of all, it's important to keep in mind that um, the victims of the Fujimori government, those who were able to access justice, because many have not, it took a very long time for that to happen. They endured these kind of kangaroo courts in Peru where people were convicted and then they were set free by amnesty laws. Then uh, they had to go to the Inter-American Court for Human Rights to ask the international system to provide them justice and to order investigations in Peru because the Peruvian state was not doing it on its own. And the court actually overturned those amnesty laws. They also had to travel to Japan and then to Chile, where he had fled after his government Mm -hmm. collapsed in 2000 to request his extradition, which they finally achieved in 2007. And so he was finally put on trial then. So it is a long, arduous complex process to achieve justice. You were at his trial in 2009. Just just remind our listeners what specifically he was convicted of. He was convicted of four cases of human rights violations. One was the Barrios Altos massacre of 15 people in 1991. The second was the forced disappearance of nine students and a university professor in 1992, and then the 1992 kidnapping of a prominent businessman and a prominent journalist. So he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. So why, given what you've just listed there, why are we seeing this push to to pardon him? Well, there's, I think there's a couple different reasons. I think the first most important reason to keep in mind is that his daughter, Keiko Fujimori, Mm. is a very powerful, very prominent politician in Peru. She first ran for the presidency in 2011 with the express purpose so that she could use the presidential pardon power to get him out of prison. Since then, her power has grown. She ran two more times. And though she lost, she lost by a very slim margin. And she has a very powerful block of Congress members in Congress. So she wields a lot of power, though she's not herself ever won the presidency. But it's also become a political football um, that different groups and political parties have used to get things they want. So people there have been through versions of this before. What's the general sentiment? Well, it's very polarized, right? The people who are supporters of Fujimori are ecstatic. Um, they're thrilled that their treasured leader is about to get freed after all these years, and they see his imprisonment as an injustice. Um, but I think the majority of Peruvians see this as a dark day for Peruvian democracy and as a sign that the current government is not willing to abide by its international obligations and that it prefers political back deals over respecting the rule of law. What do you think the fallout is going to be here? We don't know exactly what's going to happen next, but but if he does yeah. go free, what will happen? Uh, I think it's going to generate a period of very intense instability. And remember, this is a government that's only been in power. In fact, tomorrow, this government reaches the one-year mark of being in power. The current president became president after the person who was president at the time was removed from office. And it's been a very rough year. Many people were killed in protests. It's been a government that's been very criticized for um, not carrying out investigations into those crimes, for not really governing effectively, for governing in alliance with a very corrupt and very conservative group in Congress. 
um, who have zero legitimacy. The the president, her her popularity rating is under ten points. The Congress's popularity rating is around six points. I mean, there's a serious lack of legitimacy, but it's not clear what kind of alternatives are on the horizon. It's like a it's like a almost a vacuum of governability, and in that vacuum, different groups of corrupt actors are playing increasingly important roles in all key institutions from the Congress to the attorney general's office. So it's a, it's a very unsteady, unstable time uh, where rule of law, respect for human rights is really on the line. Joe Marie, thank you. Thank you so much. Joe Marie Burt is a senior fellow with the Washington Office on Latin America and an associate professor at George Mason University. We reached her in Washington, D.C. earlier today. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favorite podcast app. A New Brunswick mayor says the homelessness crisis in his community is an emergency, to which the province said, prove it. Earlier this week, the municipality of St. Stephen declared a local state of emergency, something that is normally done, as you know, in the case of flooding or ice storms or wildfires. In the declaration, the council called on the province to provide a warming shelter immediately after a man died outside. But New Brunswick's public safety minister, Chris Austin, says homelessness does not rise to the level of a state of emergency and that if the town couldn't prove it did, by tonight he would terminate it, which is exactly what he did. Alan McEachern is the mayor of St. Stephen, New Brunswick, and that's where we reached him. Mayor McEachern, public safety minister Chris Austin in a letter to you says that no state of emergency exists in St. Stephen. What do you say to him? Well, I, I just got the news that he has has uh, terminated it and uh, closed the closed the file, and so uh, and I haven't had a whole lot of time to think about where to go from here. Uh, uh, it's a little, just like a little blown away, I guess, from from uh, from hearing that. I, I felt that we could uh, use that tool to uh, speed up the process and uh, get these people off the streets tonight and. Uh, get them into a warm shelter. The minister has so, also the minister yeah. also used the phrase quote political posturing to describe this in in earlier reporting that our colleagues uh, had have done is it politicking and posturing in your view? Not on my part, no. Might have came the other way, yes, but no. It's not nothing to do with politics. It's it's about getting getting attention and getting something done and getting people's people's lives. That's 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 the bottom line. It's just not politics, you know. Uh, is it is it an issue everywhere else? Oh yes, it, it is. But we got to make this move. And if it doesn't fit the criteria for emergency order, then it should that maybe the act should change. Because uh, mm-hmm. you know we're literally letting our citizens, uh, well, uh, you know, they literally die die in these tents. Anyway, I just we just need to act now. And with an emergency order, we, we could have uh, done some things quicker. He did in a statement, uh, the minister's office sent a statement to, to CBC News and did say, quote, there's no question that homelessness is a serious problem in our province and across Canada. But later went on to say a state of emergency is an extraordinary measure that is meant to be used during floods, ice storms and security events. So he's saying these are for extreme and, and, and rare events, as, as they put it. So what would you say in response to that? What evidence do you have and do you want to share with us that illustrates for you that that this does meet the bar. You know, I, I, in the end, it's 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 the minister's decision. The wording of the of the act supports our cause here, and for for this homeless issue, when it's talking about life safety, it, it does fall into there. Again, this is a whole new no. Uh, this is a very new issue to us in the province, and it's growing throughout our country. Uh, so maybe it should be 
something written in an act somewhere. Just give us a sense of the situation. How many people are, are unhoused right now? What are you seeing on the streets there? Yeah, so there's between 70 and 100, I think there's the numbers, and uh, which which is high. To, to put that in perspective, we are per capita five times worse than Toronto. How many people live there? Uh, there is under 5,000. What has led to, to all of this? That is a large number, no matter where you live, and each one is a yeah. person with a life that matters. So what has happened? Well, we, we're going through a big economic uh, change in, in, in our environment we live in. You know, we're all on, an, on, a, on, a, on the ladder, so to speak, and we're all bumped down by this change, you know, with the interest rates and the cost of living and all, I just go on and on, we're all suffering. So we all get knocked down a step or two, or if you're on the last rung, you're out the door. And, and you know, we're pushing seniors and, and uh, families out on the street, uh, people trying to get jobs somewhere, they go to a, to a town, get the job, they can't find a place to live. So they're living in cars until they find something. That, that, this is, it's just developing these crazy times because the cost of, of rents have gone up, you know, the demand's so high, you know, and so that same ladder is happening in Ontario, for so to speak, and a lot of people from Ontario have moved to the province of New Brunswick. So when, as they come, they're moving down the ladder too, you know, and, and getting pushed out, so to speak, and the same thing's happening here. Social Development Minister Jill Green has also been responding to this, saying that that she's been working with the town, even gave you her personal number, but never heard heard back from you. So, and she also said that that efforts to find a place for warming trailers were blocked by you know feelings of nimbyism or not in my backyard that sort of attitude. What would you say in response to to what she's saying there? She's saying she's trying, but you guys aren't playing ball. Oh yeah, that's yeah yeah so. She, uh, she's exaggerating that. Uh, there, there is a, a list of properties, and some of them were not in my not not in my backyard. Is the person wouldn't sell because they didn't want to do it, or the people that live in this these structures, this this uh, shelter, uh, need to be able to walk to their services. So it has to be centrally located so they can get to the hospital, to the social services, social development, the drug stores, the grocery stores. That that that's they got to be in that walking distance. So that knocked a lot of them off the list as well. So did you did you call her back though? I mean, she's saying a phone call wasn't returned. <laughs> yeah, that's a lie. If the province had responded differently uh, and. and heeded your call, you know, after you declared a state of emergency initially, what concrete things would that have allowed you to do to help people on the streets? You know, the province can come in and say, okay, take this hall, for example, and just use it as a shelter. Boom. And Or they could maybe speed up the process on that piece of property now, because it's an emergency now, not, we're just not negotiating. So that, all those types of things. The, the relationship clearly is not in a good place, and that's having practical implications in an already difficult situation in your town. So what are you going to do next? How do you get things back on track? Oh, we're still going to work together. You know, that, that, that's a, I, I, I do believe they're going to put politics aside. I, I, just, I just literally did have a call with the minister, but I'm not prepared to make any comments this time because I want to take some time and really think about our conversation. Uh, it deserves a lot of thought, but uh, it was just this call after they uh, sent the letter to close it. To, to, uh, to remove the order. It caught you off guard a bit. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, certainly did. Yeah. Mayor McEachern, I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Alan McEachern is the mayor of St. Stephen, New Brunswick, and that is where we reached him. I don't know why someone calls a dog Betty White. I mean, actually, now I think about it, I don't know why you wouldn't call your dog Betty White. But just so you know, when I say Betty White got away from her owner, Meg Brooks, while they were out for a walk in Regina, I am talking about a dog named Betty White. And when Betty's escape became dangerous, as in life-threatening, she was lucky a total stranger named Britt Heisler showed up. Ms. Brooks and Ms. Heisler told the story to our colleagues at CBC Saskatchewan. Oh, Betty White's my little pride and joy. She's a little Maltese poodle, cross, 
And normally she sticks pretty close to home, but this particular day, she did a bit of a runner. Yeah, tell me what happened. She was on a walk, and this much larger dog came along and lunged at her and frightened her. So she somehow managed to wriggle out of her harness and started running. And as time went on, I got a little more worried and worried. Well, I can imagine. Britt, what what were you doing that day? I was on my way home from the gym, and a couple blocks from home, I saw a little white creature. I eventually lost sight of her. I had two people in a truck that were kind of on the side of the road, and I just asked them, if they're not busy, can you please help me find this dog? And they said they last saw her at this, this one part of the street, so I knew she was close by. I couldn't find her, and I was ready to give up. And something in me just said, do another drive around the back alley and come around that street, which which borders the creek there. And this little, little tiny white speck in the water from a distance. And I saw a little bit of movement and then realized it was her about two thirds of the way across the creek. She had fallen through some ice. So, Oh, my goodness. And so what happened next? Uh, I knew I had to act quick. I immediately went to the first house and asked for help because I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into either. I didn't know how deep the water was. I didn't know if there was any kind of current. So I I asked this gentleman to come out and I just ran. I just ran for the water, kind of went down the bank and realized it had a layer of ice that I would have to power through. So I kind of punched my way on the ice to get to her and picked her up and carried her back to the bank where I handed her up to this gentleman and wrapped her in a towel and uh, then realized, oh, yeah, she has a tag. She has a phone number. Yeah, Meg, what was it like to get that call and and to find out what happened? It it was like a tremendous weight off my shoulders knowing that somebody had her and she was still alive because had it not been for Britt, Betty White would never have survived that water, probably not for even a few more minutes. She literally saved my dog's life and risked her own life to do so. Meg Brooks lives in Regina. She's the owner of the dog, Betty White. You also heard from Britt Heisler, and they were both talking to the CBC's Peter Mills. In the face of hate, it can be easy to call for dialogue, to urge people to talk about it and to try to find common ground. But as Jean-Marc Delphine discovered, the idea of having those conversations can be a lot more appealing than actually having them. And he did have them. Mr. Delphine is one of two playwrights behind a new documentary-style play marking the 34th anniversary of the Montreal Massacre. His cousin, Anne-Marie Edward, was one of 14 women murdered inside the city's École Polytechnique on that day. She was 21 years old at the time. He was 16. In Projet Polytechnique, Jean-Marc Dauphin and his co-creator, Marie-Joanne Boucher, give the audience a glimpse into dozens of discussions they've had about the tragedy, with the survivors, with one another, and even with those who celebrate its perpetrator in radical online communities. We reached Jean-Marc Dauphin in Terrebonne, Quebec, ahead of tonight's performance. Jean-Marc, what made you feel that this was the right time to bring Projet Polytechnique to the stage? Well, I was uh, very much disenchanted uh, on December 6, 2018, when I published the names of the 14 women that were slain uh, on that fateful day um, on my Twitter feed. And some people actually took the time to write under my post that they deserved what they got. They deserved every bullet that was shot at them. So um, I... I'd been in the feeling that these women were untouchables. I thought that their memory had to be revered and commemorated every year. And uh, I quickly came to realize that that wasn't the case uh, for some some people that are part of our of our society. So I, Marie-Joanne Boucher and I, we decided that it was time to take action. This is very personal for you as well. You lost your cousin, Anne-Marie. 34 years ago uh, on December 6th. So when you read comments like that and have such a deep personal connection as well, it would be very easy just to be angry. How do you 
how do you channel that along with Marie-Joanne to to create something? Yeah, of course, of course, I was angry. Of course, I'm still angry. But I think the word that uh, best sums it up is primarily, I am offended. And offense means that you have some kind of leverage to go up to somebody and say, hey, this is not cool. What you've been writing, what you've been saying, we need to speak about it. And I think that our show has the power to instill into people that they need to take time to realize what they've been doing. And for instance, um, one of the key actors that opposes gun control in Quebec, his name is Guy Morin, he came to see the show and he posted a lot before the show saying, you know, I can't wait to see what they've done with me. They're probably going to show me as a big hairy bear, you know, not being too nice. And after the show was finished, he talked to us and he said, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. I, I didn't expect you guys to treat me with respect in your show. And he went on to post a Facebook video the day after he came to see the show saying that I think everybody needs to come and see that show. When we talk about misogyny, incels, gun control, knowing how difficult um, it is to, to change hearts and minds, did you know what you might be up against? Did you, did you sit down and think about that as you were trying to collect what you needed to collect? Well, the question I get asked a lot is, if you had known then what you know now, would you have done the show? And the answer is unequivocally no. Mm. It was really a hard process um, because as everybody expects, you know, you know that hate lives around us, surrounds us. But when you dive deep into it and you come to realize how actually present it is, that's something that's scary. But we kept on plowing because we felt that it was our duty to try and do something. And at every step of the way, we kept telling ourselves, this is hard, yes, but it's not as hard as having to deal with the death of your sister or your daughter or your wife. So if these people have been able to stand up and stay alive after all these years, we can manage to bring something to the stage that is hard to receive, but also filled with light and poetry. Do you think you'll actually be able to change hearts and minds? Well, I'll just tell you one simple story. That there was uh, this woman that came to see the show and left the show at intermission because it was too much for her and came back in demanding to see Marie-Joanne and I. So we came to meet her and we were, we were faced with um, this woman that was really every cell of her body was, was shaking. And she was crying a lot. And she, she told us that she really wanted to meet us because she had been um, active with uh, anti-gun control groups. She had gone in the streets to, uh, to protest against any form of gun, gun control or gun reform. And she, she just gave us her gun card. Mm. She said, I don't want to be part of that anymore. And that was, that was a very touching moment. Does that make it worth all the difficulties you discussed before? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I've, I've been working. I, I'm celebrating my 34 years of career right now. You know, uh, the first time I set foot on stage was actually on the day that we put Anne-Marie in the ground. And I've never had to hold in my arms so many people that I don't know. After the play, I come out into the venue, I talk to people, and a lot of them, they just need a big hug, you know? And then they go their own way, and what we did, what we created, keeps stays in their minds, and that's all we're doing. We're doing our parts, and the, 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 the audience members that are coming in, you know, we leave them with, what's the part that you can do? Just do your part do something. You were just 16 years old 
when yeah. the massacre yeah. happened, when you lost your cousin. Yeah. What do you remember about her? I was reading a little bit before in, in earlier coverage uh, on our CBC News website, and she was described uh, as a whirlwind, clearly beautiful, clearly very intelligent and driven. What do you yeah. remember about her? Uh, for some reason, I it, the, the thing I remember most about Anne-Marie is that she really, really, really loved uh, the song Like the Way I Do from Melissa Etheridge. It's mm-hmm. one of my uh, last memories of her, <laughs> seeing her dance like crazy on that song. Uh, um, she she was really full of light and energy. Um, but the thing that happens to you with these kinds of tragedies is that uh, you somehow either... Uh, block all memories or just keep some so most of the memories that i i have from Anne marie unfortunately are seeing her in her casket because um because it was it was a really traumatic event and again you know what i've lived is nothing compared to what my aunt suzanne my uncle jim and my cousin jimmy had to live um unfortunately my uh, uncle jim passed away last year mm-hmm. so um Sorry. he's bar- he's now buried uh, right beside Anne Marie and uh my uncle is passed away uh with a bit of uh bitterness knowing that he fought all his life for better gun control in Canada and he will not have known it um, but my aunt Suzanne keeps on working and my cousin Jimmy keeps on working and they're both doing fine. Suzanne came to see the show before uh, on, on the premiere and my cousin Jim is actually coming tonight as are most of the family members of the 13 other families that the will be there time? in the venue for the first time. Yeah. How are you feeling about that? Very nervous, actually. <laughs> I bet. To be honest, I'm really nervous, but uh, I know that they'll be uh, they'll be really happy. There's one of the members of the families that came like two weeks ago, and uh, he wanted to get in touch with me to give me that one last thing that he owned from his previous lover. He was married to Marie's Lagania, mm-hmm. and he gave us the very first present that he gave Marie's mm-hmm. uh, some 35 years ago, I guess, uh, so that she could be on stage with us uh, through this uh, piece of fabric. That's incredibly moving. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that yeah. must happen. Those kinds of moments must hit you. Uh, in waves as as the production continues. You described it as documentary theater. Just describe yeah. for our listeners w- what you mean by that and, and what kind of production this is. Well, documentary theater is uh, kind of the same thing as film documentary. I mean, Marie-Joanne and I were just two actors two citizens that decided to grasp and grapple this question of uh, of violence against women, misogyny, gun control, the rise of uh, the incel and everything. So we we uh, we started doing some research and we archived everything that we did and we met with various um, individuals that have a key say in questions that we're asking in the show and we recorded these conversations and so the whole play 100% of the words that are said on stage are words that have been said to us or that we have said or that are taken from news articles or Twitter posts or Facebook posts. And we try and make sense of all this because we didn't grapple and and, and really attack the main things that caused Marc Lépin to go into Polytechnic or Alexandre Bissonnette to go into the Grand Mosquée de Québec. I think that it's a mistake to think that these are just two crazy people. I think that we have to look at the core values of our society and to see how we can change. The conversations that you do recount verbatim, as you said in the play, include conversations with people you met online in these incel groups. Yeah. How did you feel about what you you saw, heard, and read in those groups? It was a very, very, very violent and difficult. Uh, the I have one conversation on the on the show with a person that I have met online, and I'm putting quotes around the word "met" because it was on a forum. That's the main forum for the incel. Um, 
And um, I came clean to him. I, I told him, you know, I, I lied to be a member of your forum. I've studied you guys for two years. And now I just want to know what are your feelings about Marc Lépin. And just to give you a heads up, my cousin was one of the 14. And that person talked to me, of course, tried to get me uh, angry with him. But I, I tried my best to stay calm. And at some point, he started tell telling me about his pain and how he felt. And I feel that maybe that one conversation is, has brought him to kind of reconsider his uh, membership in the Intel Forum. And how then he? we he was 17 years old. And uh, when he gave me his age, I understood that uh, from that point on, I had a responsibility because I was the adult in the conversation. So uh, I had to tread very lightly with him. Um, but And then again, we met in person with um, a blogger that had a blog called Marklippen.blogspot, who was later arrested and is now serving a sentence of 12 months in, uh, in prison for uh, promoting hate towards women. So we met, we met him before he was sentenced and we, we talked with him. But we knew that at some point he would just dig his own grave and he would make the point for us that we need to fight hate. You know, it's kind of weird to say fight hate when hate is filled with fight. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we need to find a way to oppose all that hate. Because his blog, when I, when I first discovered the blog, there were 60,000 people that were following it. But he was also writing on the incel forum. And that incel forum at some point uh, had over 2 million pages of messages. And from the first day that we started working on Projet Polytechnique to the day that we premiered on November 13th, 921 women were killed in Canada because they were women. That's a huge number. That's a huge number. Natalie Provo is, is someone you speak with, a Polytechnique survivor. Her words are featured in your play. She was also a guest on, on this program on this very day last year. We'll, we're just going to play a short clip of what she said in that interview. Yeah. Because I have a formal position to try to help or to reduce the, the, the probability of those massacres with my uh, activ uh, activism as in gun control. Uh, I think it helps me. I do my best to improve our the safety in our society. That That's the way I think I, I stay um, mm -hmm. calm. But my mental health is not as strong as it was or as strong as somebody who hasn't uh, survived anything. And I know where I'm fragile. I know that I need help. And I, I take care of myself yeah. also. She talks about there how she has to safeguard her own mental health as a survivor, even as she does this work. How do you, how do you take care of yourself as you do your part, as you've said? Well, I rely a lot on friends and family. Uh, I'm not afraid to cry in front of my kids. I've got uh, two teenage uh, boys. One is 19, the other is 16. And I've, in the past, in these past five years of working on Projet Polytechnique, I've, I've, I've cried a lot on their shoulders, mm -hmm. really keeping in mind that life is beautiful and is worth living. So I try and remember every day that Um, the sun will come up <laughs> and that there are flowers. And I, I think a lot about my cousin Amory and I think a lot about my aunt Suzanne who keeps her living through her love of flowers. And she has this beautiful garden that's called Anne-Marie's Garden, which is made of bright red and bright uh, white mm -hmm. flowers. And I talk a lot to uh, Nathalie Provo, who's been a really, really uh, great uh, friend of ours uh, throughout this whole project. And uh, funny thing is that she came to uh, the premiere of the show, and right before people started applauding, she yelled 
thank you. And then, and then when she came backstage, she said, I just wanted to make real sure that I was the first one to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jean-Marc, uh, you have a lot of uh, people in your corner, it, it sounds like, uh, and a big show tonight. So thank you yes. for setting aside some time for us uh, on what is a, a very meaningful day on several fronts. Thank you, Jean-Marc. Thank you, and thank you for taking the time to remember these 14 women. Always. Jean-Marc Delfon is the co-creator of the new play Projet Polytechnique and the cousin of Anne-Marie Edward, who was killed in the Montreal Massacre. We reached him in Terrebonne, Quebec. In that interview, you heard a short excerpt from Neil's conversation with Polytechnique survivor Nathalie Prevost, whose words are also featured in Jean-Marc's play. Ms. Prevost spoke with us a year ago about becoming a character in a Louise Penny detective novel and about the moment she attended a graduation ceremony at Polytechnique Montreal last June. Here she is once more from our archives. For me, it's big, big reconciliation with that school. I love it, but it's also a tough tough place. And it has been tough years for me. So to be recognized as an engineer um, is very, um, sorry, just talking about it and I moved. Um, It's... It, it was important. It, it's like um, in French, I would say, in book qui se, qui se ferme. Um, and uh, I feel at home now in Polytechnique. I was there, and the first time I put my foot in that school in 1985, when I began my studies, I felt home. But now it is my home. I know that I am from there formally and recognized officially by Polytechnic. You said after that ceremony in an interview that you said to to the shooter, you won't stop me, you tried, but you won't succeed. Do you still repeat those words to you? Do those words still, still have that power for you? Uh, my, my iron ring is always with me because of that. So each time I take the time to look at my ring and to 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 feel what it means to have it, I have this feeling that I'm still there, and you 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 try to stop me, and I'm there. And um, growing older, I know that my power just increase uh, in organizations in my daily professional life. So yes, I think that I am walking my way with all I can do. Montreal massacre survivor Nathalie Provost speaking with Neil this time last year. Today marks 34 years since 14 women were murdered at Montreal's Ecole Polytechnique simply for being women. been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.